Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll talk about the long, drawn-out, some would say torturous fiscal year 2024 appropriations process, which may finally be wrapping up in the next few days, or maybe not. Our guest is Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Uh, Bill spent 33 years grinding through the budget process on Capitol Hill, uh, most of which he spent as a U.S. Senate uh, staff member. In fact, Hoagland is the longest serving Republican Senate Budget Committee staff director in history from 1982 to 2003. Bill, have I got that right? That's right. That's right. Uh, he later served as the director of budget and appropriations in the office of Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. And uh, to join the conversation, as usual, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson, who have also been through the ringer on budget process a time or two <laughs> in their years on the Hill. So, Bill, Tori and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Good to be back. Um, okay, so I want to set the stage, Bill, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but fiscal year 2024 began on October 1st, 2023. And by that date, Congress was supposed to have passed all of its 12 annual appropriation bills. None of them were passed by that date. So to avoid a funding lapse, which is often referred to as a government shutdown, they passed a continuing resolution known as a CR, extending funding at the 2023 level through November 17th. And then with that new deadline was approaching, still no appropriation bills had been passed. And so they passed a second CR. And this one had a twist. It was called a laddered CR because it set two deadlines. The first was January 19th and covered four appropriation bills, about 20%. And the second was for February 2nd, which covered the remaining eight bills. And that was where the big money was, defense and labor HHS. All right, so that got them past the holiday season. But by January 18th, one day before the first of those two deadlines, there was still uh, no appropriations bills having been passed. And so Congress passed a third CR, this time, the latter deadlines were March 1st and March 8th. And so still no appropriation bills have been passed. And here we are five months into the fiscal year and still no resolution. So, Bill, let's let me begin with a basic question. Uh, how did we get almost halfway through the fiscal year with no appropriations bills having been passed? Well, part of it has to do with the fact that we couldn't get an agreement over who should be the speaker after we had an agreement, which delayed a lot. It took up a lot of time. 
more importantly, I think uh, a lot of negotiations over what was agreed to in the Fiscal Responsibility Act back in last June as to what the number was and whether the House agreed to the number after it was ag- thought was agreed to under McCarthy. And as a consequence, and we had a delay as to, as to that. And now we have the delay as it relates to not the numbers. And we've all agreed to the number, the aggregate number. Uh, and in fact, I believe we've all uh, pretty much agreed to what the subcommittee level should be. I think the big problem right now is the usual problems of the House and uh, having an, uh, some of the more conservative members wanting to have some writers uh, that are outside of the numbers arguments, whether it's LGBTQ issues, whether it's uh, guns issues, whether it's abortion issues. Um, and it's these la- these writers that now has delayed it even further. And I would simply note we should be we should have been already working on fiscal year twenty five by now. <laughs> We're setting ourselves up for a disastrous fall, regardless of whether we get to an agreement here or not on fiscal year 24. Uh, we're we're going to have only about five months left in the fiscal year before we get around to talking about next year's. Yeah, I think people uh, that don't follow this closely, and that would be like almost everybody, you know, outside of th- those of us that whose job it is to do this, you know, would, would be excused for thinking that this is sort of a normal routine thing. Congress is just fighting about appropriations bills. But but as you said, we really should be working on the next year's bills, which is supposed to be passed by September, because we're setting ourselves up for another thing. I, do you think that we're looking at another continuing resolution for the 2024 bills? I honestly believe that we don't have enough time here uh, to uh, be finished by the end of the week on those four bills. And in fact, in those four bills, uh, the writers are holding them up, uh, deal with things such as the LGBTQ and housing. It, uh, there's an issue as it relates to the SNAP program and the WIC program. Uh, so I believe we're looking at a potentially either a, a short-term shutdown this weekend, at least for those four bills. And then uh, I do believe that uh, we are looking at another continuing resolution. And maybe we're rolling all 12 bills into another continuing resolution Rumor is it that we're looking at a possible continuing resolution to March 22nd, which is right before the next major recess. <laughs> uh, the president and the and the four corners, the four leaders are meeting tomorrow. Maybe uh, hope springs eternal. Uh, it is spring. Maybe things can uh, come together here. Maybe we can figure out a way of uh, uh, at least uh, avoiding uh, another shutdown. But uh, right now, it's we don't have a lot of time. All I can say is uh, this is giving new meaning to the to March Madness. I think we're really headed toward a, uh, a difficult March. What would we do without those seasonal references? The 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 turkeys at Thanksgiving and the <laughs> giveaway Santa Claus budgets at Christmas. And uh, but this is this is March Madness. Very very apt. Well, Tori. What jolly things can you bring to the table? <laughs> well, I, I'd like to stick with the idea of deadlines here for a second, because, uh, you know, everybody's focused on the March 1st deadline, which is this coming Friday for four appropriations bills. Then, you know, uh, Bill mentioned the March 8th deadline for the remaining eight, a potential s- another CR. I've lost count of how many. Would this be the fifth, I think? Fourth. Uh, fourth, I think this fifth, would be the, well, fifth yeah. okay, to March 22nd. But I keep reading in the in the, in the the dailies on Capitol Hill that the real deadline is April 30th. And Bill, I was wondering if you talk about why people are so focused on April 30th. Yeah, I, I think this is an important point. To, and I and I 
quite frankly, I agree with you, Tori. I think the real deadline is the end of April because of the Fiscal Responsibility Act that we agreed to last last year, last June. Uh, sets up a procedure whereby if uh, we uh, we could have across the board reductions that would become 30 would go into kick into place after uh, I think it's 30 days after that that, that deadline and uh, that is a one percent cut but the problem is of course the one percent cut from a continuing resolution level with only five months could be a lot larger for some programs uh, the one percent was over an annual basis so uh, there is a discussion some of the conservatives would argue well, why don't we just do the continuing resolution kick in the one percent cut at the end of april and look at all the savings we're going to get most of those savings by the way would occur in the non-defense discretionary area uh, relative to a continuing resolution at the same time i've been told that the defense people are very adamant about not having a continuing resolution i don't know corey i i'm i'm of the mindset that you're right that the real deadline here is april the end of april so i'm i'm, I'm curious there's um you know, they talk about April 30th triggering this this sequester that could happen 30 days later if we can't get full year appropriations bills passed. But the, you can also make the argument that a continuing resolution that funds the government for the rest of the fiscal year isn't of itself an appropriations bill. And hence, the, the president's Office of Management and Budget would have the legal authority to say, that's, a, that's an appropriations bill, so there is no sequester. So these Republicans that are holding out, the conservatives, you know, this faction of conservative House Republicans who are holding out thinking they can run out the clock and sort of force a sequester that would hit hard non-defense discretionary spending. Are they on a fool's errand here? I I like your thinking uh, because at the end of the day, it is OMB that will make the determination as to whether or not that 1% cut goes into effect or not. Now, I don't know what happens if they say it doesn't go into effect. We have a continuing resolution and therefore there's no cuts across the board. It's just at the funding at the last year's level. I don't know if somebody can challenge that and who challenges it under a court. And even by the time they got through the courts, the fiscal year will be over with and we'll be into another one. So I'm with you on this one. I, I think it's a kind of a fool's errand on those people who think they can hold out until the end of April and, and somehow they're going to get these great cuts. I don't uh, on the non-defense side. I don't think it's a it's it makes any sense because I truly believe in an election year. Uh, politics will play here, and OMB will have a, will be able to find enough flexibility in that law to say that there are no one percent cuts. We're going to take our first break. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby. Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the latest threat of a government shutdown with Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the latest threat of a government shutdown with Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. And let me now go to Steve Robinson for a question. So, Bill, you had mentioned in the earlier segment that Congress had more or less agreed on on the level of spending and that what was holding up the bills were, were what we refer to as policy writers. Most of the press has focused on... Um, the, the, the Republicans who are insisting on various 
language restricting the use of federal funds for like Planned Parenthood or some sort of restrictions on guns. And uh, I, I noticed in the press, though, that Majority Leader Schumer in the Senate and, and Speaker Johnson were trading barbs. And, uh, and apparently uh, Speaker Johnson saying, well, you know, it's not just the GOP that has policy writers that are holding this up. Apparently, uh, the Democrats have some on their side. I, I haven't seen much on that. It, it, is this sort of a, a bipartisan dilemma where both both sides are insisting on language that the other side doesn't want to accept? It's a good question, Steve. I haven't. I don't know what those policy writers are that are on the Democratic side. I think the, the ones that are on the Republican side have been pretty well communicated because they were in the appropriation bills that the House had put together. We've never really been able to identify what if there were policy writers in that in the Senate bills, we haven't been able to, they haven't been uh, as transparent, let's say. So you're, you're probably right. I, I, it's hard to believe in this day and age that uh, there aren't uh, some writers even that Democrats would like. And there are also some earmarking that that goes on, too, as you know, that may have, uh, well, it's a numbers issue, may still have some uh, impact upon this, uh, people's support of a particular piece of legislation. Listen, I, I think you've got a good question here. I think it's a, a pox on both houses. Quite frankly, I wish we didn't have any writers at all on either the House, Senate, Republican or Democrat, because the appropriators, the staff, as you know, Steve, you and, and Tori have worked with them. They they felt like they had the deals here worked out. And then all of a sudden they buck it up to the, uh, to, to the leadership. And uh, that's where it held up. So that's why I'm slightly optimistic, though. I don't want to get too optimistic that if the four, if the leaders sit down with the president tomorrow, that they can say, okay, let's set this aside, let's get on, and we can carry these fights on uh, later on, either in the in the next round of appropriation bills, or take it to the American public in an election this fall. I mean, it seems like at the end of the day, the thing that always holds up the appropriation bills are, you know, specific political hot button issues. I mean, you know, it does this make a case for, you know, and this has been tossed around before. I mean, you know, if you don't pass the appropriation bills, you face a government shutdown and various members have proposed, well, you know, if we were to do an automatic continuing resolution, we could fund the government, the government wouldn't shut down and then we could fight over the policy writers. And it seems that the response is always, well, you know, if, if you did an automatic CR, you might get stuck and then that that's the government would be permanently funded at last year's level forever. And I guess my my thinking on that, though, is Congress always wants more money for something. <laughs> and so it seems to me, even if you permanently funded the entire government at last year's level, to the extent you go forward and you want to adjust this program or that program, there's always going to be enough momentum to say, we got to come back and do a supplemental or an emergency appropriation or something. And it would give Congress the opportunity to plus up the accounts that it wanted to but it would avoid the dilemma of shutting down the whole government. I mean, is there some merit to that? Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm with you. It's a similar similar arguments that you know, uh, Steve and Tori, that I've made over the last many years to do. Let's go to buy. Let, let's go to two year budgeting and appropriation. Let's appropriate for two years. And I always get the argument. Well, but things happen. Well, sure they happen. And you can adjust. In the state of Virginia right now, we're going through a budget battle here in the state of Virginia. And they have something which I, I kind of like the term. They have a caboose uh, budget, which is a, a, an adjustment to the current year. You can do this. Come on. Uh, you don't have to. You can have a continuing resolution. And if there's an issue where we need additional funding, there will be. Uh, there, there'll be the 
opportunity there. I guess I uh, for your listeners, and I, I don't need to. I don't need to tell the two of you, certainly, or even Bob. I am so always so struck that we're arguing about what thirty uh, percent of the federal budget, uh, uh, and even more realistically, we're only talking about fifteen percent of the federal budget when we're because most of the fights are in the non-defense area. We're spending too much time on this segment of the federal budget when we ought to be focusing on that other seventy percent or fifty percent if you take out interest on the public debt. That that's what bothers me. All this discussion, people are thinking that we're making great progress. We're not making progress in what really bothers me, and that's the accumulation of the overall debt, which is and that's spending from non-appropriated accounts. And one of the things that is just striking <clears throat> from the last CBO report is the role of net interest. By yeah. next year, reaching a record level as a percentage of uh, the economy and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're right, we're just diddling around the edges here, even with these things, and, and not even being successful at dithering around the edges. I want to um, switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the politics of this and the way you were talking about it with the, the, the riders. But there's a dynamic going on in the House that's been going on all year that sort of plays into this and in that, you know, in order to get enough votes to pass anything, Speaker first Speaker McCarthy and then Speaker Johnson had to get Democratic votes because he couldn't get enough Republican votes. And so things have passed. We've had these CRs passed with large bipartisan support. If this happens again, um, is, is part of the problem here that Speaker Johnson needs to find a way to pass these things in a way that he maintains credibility with his own caucus? I'll start, but I'd like to hear from Tori and Steve on this one. But my my sense is that the speaker is, uh, shall I say, he he's learning. And this is not a job that you take on in learning. You should have spent more time in the uh, out there playing before in the leadership role. And I think he's in a very, very difficult position with a very narrow margin. And if he's trying to protect his speakership, I don't think he should worry about it. I don't think the House is interested at this particular point in the year, a few months out from an election, to go through another, vacate the, the speaker's position. I think he is the speaker of the House. He ought to recognize that. I know it's tough, uh, but I do think that he has to recognize that the that, uh, that he's going to need Democratic support to pass legislation, whether it's the supplemental or whether it's these particular appropriation bills that we're talking about. I think it, uh, hopefully he'll get there. But right now, I think he's uh, trying to protect his position when he should be trying to when he should be focused on the overall good of the country. Well, it's almost a no win because uh, I, I don't know how he could protect his position and, and pass bills at the same time. That's the uh, dilemma that he's facing, unless he faces well, down the people that might be inclined to challenge him. Uh, that, Tori. That, well, as I say, I think that kind of this is why you know we've had discussions about shutdowns, funding lapses all year long, you know, since last fall. And I've never been too concerned about any of them until up, up until now. 
I, I think that as, as as Bill said earlier, that the possibility of a shut of a temporary lapse in funding for those those agencies that are funded by the four appropriations bills that expire this Friday, I think it's a real thing. And I think it's a real thing because A, Democrats have no reason to compromise because they know that the Speaker of the House is going to need Democratic votes to get spending bills across the line. But I also think that Johnson is is realizing that there are such things as, as, as you know, pressure release votes in the House and the Senate. You know, sometimes you just got to let an amendment go forward, even though it's not going to pass, just to give your members, you know, something to vote for and get their <clears throat> out. Well, I think there's a, a, a big chunk of the right flank in, in the House Republican caucus who's really clamoring for a shutdown. And I think Johnson at this point is willing to let them have it so that, A, they can feel the heat and fall in line when they need to, when the other eight bills are coming up. Uh, but also to show that, you know, he himself, Johnson is like, hey, I'm doing what you asked me to do. Now you've made your bed, you're gonna have to lie in it. <laughs> so it's sort of, you know, it's it's in both Biden's interest, but in Johnson's interest to let a short, brief, you know, microcosm of a funding lapse occur. It helps Johnson get his right flank in line, you know, to, 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 to stop causing these problems. And it, you know, again, for Biden, it just makes political sense. So, you know, that's sort of what I see happening here. Uh, one of the bills that uh, the four bills is, of course, the transportation bill. And in the transportation is the uh, FAA. And I just noticed and I looked at that up this morning, uh, about 40 percent of the FAA employees would be furloughed under uh, shutdown this weekend. Now, the air traffic controllers, I think, are there for uh, safety and security will continue to be working, but they're going to be angry once mm -hmm. again. And I, I don't, so I'm, I'm not suggesting don't fly, but uh, uh, this weekend, but uh, <laughs> this is going to, uh, there, there's going to be pressure here building on, even on a short-term shutdown mm -hmm. over the weekend. Well, people right. waiting in line. I mean, if there are fewer T, if people, TSA people call in sick or whatever, don't, don't come in and there are long lines. That's, that is the sort of thing that, finds its way back to congressional offices. So we're going to have to take our second break here. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the latest threat of a government shutdown with Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the latest threat of a government shutdown and other things with Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Up to now, uh, we've been discussing the regular appropriations bills, which have yet to be passed almost halfway into the fiscal year. There's a, a, another uh, series of bills or one bill that is uh, really important, uh, generally referred to as a security supplemental bill. It's, it's, it's funding for uh, Ukraine, Israel, uh, Taiwan, humanitarian assistance to, to Gaza. There was border security <laughs> attached to it before, but that was, um, that was taken out. Bill, the, the, the stripped down bill, when I say stripped down, getting rid of the border part of it, passed with overwhelming bipartisan support in the Senate, seems to be stalled in the House. Do you have any sense of, 
you know, what might shake that loose? Are they going to have to finish the regular appropriations bills first and then maybe come back to it? I have no inside information on this one, except to say that I think it's uh, just the logistics of it that we need to take care of the existing supple- uh, existing appropriation bills that we're facing here this week and uh, next week uh, up to March 8th. Uh, I think that precedes uh, their uh, working on the supplemental. Now, if it's possible, and uh, uh, hope springs eternal here also, that maybe if they can work out a deal at the White House tomorrow, that you could put that supplemental on one of these uh, appropriations uh, packages too. But uh, my guess is that the two are separate and you'll have to do the regular 12 bill appropriations before we get back to the supplemental. I do think time is running out on the supplemental. Uh, well, it's running out in the sense of uh, Ukraine. I, I think it's very clear that uh, the leadership that Mr. Schumer, his Codell that went over to uh, uh, to Ukraine this weekend. I think the pressure is going to build. And I listen. I understood that the Speaker Johnson supported uh, Ukraine funding. Uh, I just don't understand why he can't go ahead and bring this up. It'll have the votes in the in the House overwhelmingly if he does it under suspension. Um, and the sooner the better. But. Uh, no, I think you'll have to do the uh, regular appropriation bills before we get back to the supplemental. Any chance of breaking the supplemental up even further and passing it in, you know, the the Ukraine section and the uh, uh, you know Israeli section and the humanitarian section? Steve and Corey weigh in on that, but my guess is it's difficult enough just to get one bill through. If you try to get three or four different bills through in this environment, you'll get not, those other ones are get hung up and we won't get around to Israel or the humanitarian assistance or or um, in uh, Indo-Pacific uh, funding. I think breaking it up makes sense when it was when the 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 direction of legislation is going the other way. When a house bill is going to the Senate, if you have two different factions that are in support of two different parts of the bill, at different times, it makes sense to pass one than the other, marry them up in an, in a resolution or in the, the the role that that governs debate in the House so that it goes over to the Senate as a single package. But here, with respect to the supplemental, we've got a, a, a package that's already been approved by the Senate. And if you split it up into two different packages, you know, in the House, then it's got to go back to the Senate again. And that's where things get, you know, the factions in the Senate then start to muck things up. So I don't, this supplemental, it either passes on its own uh, after full year appropriations for the government are, are passed or it gets attached to a the, the the full year funding package and it ends up as one giant omnibus plus supplemental but i don't see it getting split up into smaller pieces i just to defer to steve next but but i just want to make this one point that it's increasingly frustrating to me that that bills that have overwhelming bipartisan support can't be passed <laughs> because for one reason or another you know, the leadership doesn't want to bring it to the floor and it can happen in, in, in either house. Well, but, um, I mean, this, this goes back to what we were talking about before, though. I mean, uh, I mean, according to press reports, there are members of the House who are telling Johnson that you cannot bring up the Senate passed bill because they want the border security put back in the bill. And so they don't want to vote for the 
border security list bill. They want they want that put back in. And if he brings it up without that, you know, does that threaten his speakership? And is he willing to to take that chance? I mean, that's but the, they don't want that. They, they don't want what was there put back in. Well, they want yeah, I mean, different. that's the right. That's the dilemma is that they don't want the Senate passed border security language. They want the House language, which HR2. was yeah, which was which was much stricter. Um, you know, you've got this sort of all or nothing, my way or the highway attitude, and that's not conducive for getting a bipartisan compromise. I guess we talked about this a little bit before, but I mean, is the possibility of a uh, uh, vacating the chair and going through that whole thing again? I mean, do you, do you think people would actually do that? That it means trying to get rid of the speaker that happened once earlier this year. Can, can you imagine if you're trying to retain control of the House of Republicans, the Republicans want to retain control again in the in the next Congress, the 119th Congress, that they would literally put their speaker ship again on the line. I, I just think the politics of that play so badly for Republicans. They may lose the they may lose the House anyway, uh Republicans, but uh, that would to me that would put the nail in the coffin if they if they did it again. Well I hope they get it done because uh, I get I get very frustrated looking at what's happening in Ukraine and thinking that the United States is is standing by and basically watching a, a democracy in uh, in Europe uh, being murdered in in front of our eyes and uh, that 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 is troubling um, to me uh, even as a budget hawk I think we need to find some ways to to have our 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 place in the world. Um, Steve, um, anything um, uh, on the uh, on the process to to add to this? Well, I, I guess if to to change topic a little bit, um, you know, but, but Bill, you were at the budget Senate Budget Committee for quite quite a long time. Actually, Tori and I both also worked there a little a little after you. We we came we came later, but um, our, our old boss, Senator Enzi, uh, toward the end of his career before he retired, um, had introduced. Well, I'm sure he actually got legislation, but he he had publicly said, you know, I, I'm not sure this whole budget process is working. And and if we can't get it to work, maybe we should just get rid of the budget committee. And, you know, we might not be prepared to go that far. But I mean, if you think about certainly in recent history, the only role that the budget resolution has served is to allow for reconciliation. And if you look at the last several times we've used reconciliation, it was either for Obamacare or it was for tax cuts. And so we've used reconciliation to increase the deficit, which is certainly, I don't think, what was intended from, from that perspective. So what, I guess two questions, what's your thought about, you know, does the budget committee still have a role? And if, if reconciliation is the only way we're going to use it, maybe that role isn't quite what we intended. So what, what, are, you th what are your thoughts? Well, I'm, I'm glad you raised this. <laughs> I, we could go on. We could have a whole series of, on this, Bob. But <laughs> this is the 50th anniversary this year of the Congressional Budget Empowerment Control Act. came into existence in 1974, July of 1974. And as you all, uh, you budgeteers will remember, uh, the raison d'etre, if you like, for this was uh, President Nixon impounding money. It's the Congressional Budget Impoundment Control Act. And I guess what I want to say, Steve, is uh, I still am an old-fashioned guy who believes that governments need budgets, uh, families need budgets, uh, 
the Concord Coalition needs a budget. The BPC needs a budget. Uh, we all we should have budgets, and we should be able to sit down and think through what our resources are and what our what our uh, revenues will be. Um, and I I think there still is a need for a budget process. I would agree, and Mr. Enzi had a proposal to make some reforms to this, and I also agree agree with him at that point that we need to. Uh, one change I would say, Steve reconciliation to the extent that the initial use of reconciliation was not for the purposes of adding to the deficit but was for the purposes of i thought of reducing a deficit you could change this process in such a way that you could not use reconciliation the way it's been used most recently in a partisan way under mr trump or quite frankly let's be honest under under previous administration where it didn't matter. Reconciliation could add to a deficit or reduce. I, I get really uh, sensitive about the 2001 tax cuts. They were put in place, yes, but at that time we were projecting a surplus as far as the eye could see. We were not projecting a deficit. We were reducing a surplus. I think that that was a that triggered. Well, if you can use it to cut taxes, then you can use it to raise revenues uh, or raise spending or even cut taxes more. And I think we can modify this process to get it back on uh, onto what it was and force these decisions in a more uh, in a more effective way, such that uh, we have not had in the in the fifty year history we've not had. And I'm going to throw this year in, which it's not not going to happen. And I believe twenty five also. I think it's been fourteen years out of that 50 years that we haven't put a budget together. And most of those are 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2019, 2020, 2024, <laughs> and I'll say 2025 too. At that point, we're going to have to take our uh, third break and, uh, and come back to hear more about uh, the 50th anniversary of the Budget Act. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about the Budget Act, the supplementals, the possible shutdown with uh, Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the budget process and the possibility of a government shutdown with Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. And we were talking about the uh, 50th anniversary this year of the uh, Budget Impoundment uh, and Control Act. Tori, I think you had a follow-up question. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking a lot about you know a budget process and the the Congressional Budget Act, how it, it's it's uh, you know turning fifty years old this week, and we don't talk a lot about the the sort of the second half of that piece of legislation, which is the Impoundment Control Act. Um, back, uh, Bill, you could probably fill in the history better than I, but the the purpose of the Impoundment Control Act is to make sure that the executive branch spends money the way Congress intends it to be spent and according to the laws that it passes, and if 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 the president, the executive branch doesn't want to do that, they can send a message to Congress saying, hey, I'm not going to spend this money for about 45 days because I want you to rescind it, spend less, cancel this budget authority, and I need you guys to pass a law that would do that. I'm concerned because we heard over the weekend that a second uh, Trump administration uh, would include potentially a proposal that would basically ignore 
that the Trump administration is planning to ignore the spending plans that Congress puts forward, you know, in, in violation of the Impoundment Control Act. And Bill, I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit about the Impoundment Control Act in terms of what recourse does Congress have in the Impoundment Control Act if the president doesn't spend accordingly, if any? Are there any, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I know there's some guardrails, but I'm wondering how effective they are. <laughs> well, it's a very good question because, quite frankly, there are two uh, pieces of legislation that are a power of the purse. The first one is the very old Anti-Deficiency Act of the 1980s, which has penalties, civil penalties. You can go to jail if you if you violate uh, the Anti-Deficiency Act. Uh, now, that's a different act than the impoundment. But quite frankly, there is no penalty, from what I can tell, if you violate and say, I'm not going to spend it. Now, somebody surely will say, wait a minute. That violates the Congressional Budget Impoundment Control Act, and I'm going to take you to court over it. That is violating that act. If you're going to impound monies, if you're not going to spend money that Congress has authorized and appropriated, and you, Mr. President, signed it into law, and then you say you're not going to spend the money, I, then I do think that that violates the that act, and that would take you at least a into the litigation. The trouble is, to be honest with you, by the time you get through the litigating process, the fiscal year is probably over with and it's already done. Under the current law, as you all know, if you impound money, if you're going to impound money, you have to tell Congress under the Impoundment Act, and it may be justified, there may be reasons, but you got to do that, then you can Congress 45 days. What is, there's something called a, a pocket rescission, which you could Previous Congress, previous presidents could, and I think the Trump administration did this, and maybe some of the others too, where you put, made that proposal for impounding within the before Congress runs out within that forty-five days, and there's nothing you can do about it either. So there really is no real strong enforcement mechanism for the impoundment, and maybe they could get away with it, saying, "I'm not going to spend it." So let me ask you this one question, because I don't have the answer to this, but I'm thinking that you might, Bill. There are some discretionary appropriations that are more than one year money, right? Most discretionary, discretionary appropriations money expires at the end of the fiscal year. So you've got you know 365 days to spend it. If you don't, you lose it. The whole use it, you lose it rule, right? But right. that, for example, there's some defense money that's multi-year money, right? There's, there's other money within the discretionary budget that is multi-year money. Can Congress respond or preempt a president who is not gonna obey these laws by saying, all right, we're going to pass these appropriations bills, but we're going to make this, this money available for two or three years rather than one year. Can they do that in an appropriations bill and sort of you know, looking forward and saying, hey, if Trump is going to be president, we need to make this multi-year money? Uh, I, I think you're right. I think you can. Uh, certainly, Congress can uh, make it um, a multi-year, a no-year money that uh, continues on. Uh, an impoundment can, however, reach into those unobligated balances in the out years too. So, but I think you're right. I think that that this would, if anything, this would would uh, incentivize appropriators, uh, a Congress, to do multi-year appropriations uh, going forward. Uh, but I have this feeling that uh, the impoundment can reach in, reach out beyond the current fiscal year too. 
Yeah, but from a legal perspective, by making it multi-year money, you can't run out the clock. In other words, the court would have time to decide That's true. That, That's that you could continue to spend the money. Yeah. So what this argues for, I think I don't I, I want to retain the, the power of the purse and the constitutional requirements in Article One, Section Nine of the Constitution. I do think the Impoundment Control Act needs amendments and reforms to do the kind of things we just talked about. So you can't run out the clock. So you so that you do have a, a, a more transparency in what is being impounded. Uh, listen, I, I don't have any trouble with uh, con a president wanting to say, for good reasons, we don't need this money. It's not being spent effectively. Let's return it. Let's let's return it to the taxpayer. I just think there is a process we went through in 1972, 73, 74. It brought about the impoundment, follow the impoundment correct, follow the procedure. You don't want to spend the money, tell Congress, and within 45 days, either you're, and if you have good justification for it, Congress will go along with you. Bill, in our last uh, couple of minutes, I just wanted to look at and to draw some sort of contrast between uh, where we are now and where we are, where we were several years ago, about 15 years ago, when the uh, Bipartisan Policy Center sponsored a uh, debt reduction task force um, chaired by Alice Rivlin and Pete Domenici. Um, and they, we were meeting at the same time as the Bowles Simpson um, uh, Commission was meeting. This, I raise it because there's talk about a new fiscal commission now, and, uh, and I hope that uh, happens. But the you know, I was I was playing with a new toy that the CBO has on their website, an interactive that lets you sort of plug in deficit reduction paths and just kind of looking at what you would need to to stabilize the debt to GDP ratio. And it's about six trillion. You get about another trillion of interest savings, and that's what you need over 10 years. And I the numbers seem familiar. So I went back and it, it seems to me that in in the first version of the Rivlin Domenici task force, we found about six trillion worth of savings. And and in Bull Simpson, they had about four trillion worth of savings. And I think there were a little bit of difference in the baseline we were using from what they were using. But what struck me was that in those days, that quantum of savings, six trillion or so, got the debt to GDP ratio <laughs> down to 60%. That's what we were trying to do in, in Rivlin Domenici. And I think Simpson Bowles got there down to 65%. Six trillion worth of policy savings today keeps the debt at 100% of GDP. So that's kind of, in my mind, a measure of the cost of delay. <laughs> any, any, any thoughts about where we are now versus where we were then? Well, it's always been the situation that the sooner you act, the better off we are in dealing with our debt and our future debt. And that clearly made the case very strongly. If we'd acted back then, we'd be in a much better situation than we are today. It's going to get more difficult the longer we delay this. All I can say is you're, I, I agree with your numbers. I think it's uh, this requires some very difficult policy uh, uh, or very difficult decisions to make on the part of uh, decision makers if they're going to be serious. My biggest concern at this age of where I am in my life cycle is that um, we are kidding ourselves if we think that uh, somehow we have nothing to worry about long term. I think this really does add to the debt burden of the future, and it's on my children and my grandchildren, 
and they're either going to pay uh, they're going to pay for this one way or the other, either through higher taxes, higher higher interest rates, or even worse, uh, a, a lower standard of living. And the sooner we act, the better. Uh, it's just only going to get more difficult. Yeah, and I always think about this as uh, you know, people say, "Well, you've you know been running this high debt and these high deficits, and and nothing has happened." You know, I think that there are reasons to say something has happened. But one thing that's happened that is off the you know radar screen is this growth in debt and making it much more difficult to solve the problem. And the increased difficulty of bringing the budget onto a sustainable path is something that has happened, <laughs> whether people recognize it or not. One other thing that's happened uh, since uh, Bo Simpson or Dementia Rivlin, uh, we had Jamie Dimon over here uh, for a discussion a few weeks ago. And uh, the globalization of the world economy, uh, there are countries are out there looking who are buying our debt, have been buying our debt. That's a, that's not a given. And if there is some possibility that we're not going to honor our debt, you can be assured that we can see interest rates even getting worse. So I think there's a big I think the world has changed dramatically since I began on this merry-go-round many years ago. And if, and we have to be more cognizant of, at some point, they may say, are they gonna be able to honor that debt as it is at the secure debt? And if they if we start to get risky on that, government shutdowns, not increasing our debt, we're gonna to start to see, this, see uh, um, ramifications that are gonna be harmful to the economy long-term. So Bill, I wanna thank you very much for uh, joining us. Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Thank you to Tori and Steve, as usual. And tune in again next week when I'll be back with another edition of Facing the Future.